This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. When a well-known and adored nurse went missing in Anchorage, the city was literally brought to a halt in searching for her. It didn't take long for a suspect to catch the detective's attention. Their concern wasn't just because he was a neighbor, nor was it because he had outstanding warrants. It was because he had been suspected of killing before. For the next two episodes, I will be telling the stories of Della Brown, Mindy Schloss, and Joshua Wade three Alaskans whose lives and deaths would become intertwined, generating conversations about treatment of Indigenous victims, state responsibility, and all of the hurt that could have been avoided. Before we get into today's story, I would like to talk about my references. If you would like to see photos and videos from the case, you can go to our blog at murderintherain.com and check out the second episode of the new Oxygen show, Fatal Frontier, Evil in Alaska. Most of the story today has come from the book by Monty Francis, Ice and Bone, Tracking an Alaskan Serial Killer. You can find out more about that book and all of the other ones we've used for cases on our website under the tab Murder Reads. Obviously, there is a lot more detail in the book. My version of the story is about 45 pages. His is about 356. So there's clearly more to all of this. I recommend the book for anyone interested in learning more about how the case is played out. It definitely reads more so from a journalistic perspective, making it a bit more impersonal in its presentation than other true crime books. But that being said, I still highly recommend it. It was August 7, 2007. Kathy Hodges was worried about her friend Mindy Schloss. Kathy lived six hours away from Anchorage in Fairbanks and knew Mindy from their work together in social services. The two healthcare workers provided support through the nonprofit Tanhana Chiefs Conference, which focuses on the health, strength, and unity of the indigenous people of Alaska. Mindy, 52, was a psychiatric nurse practitioner who split her time between Fairbanks and Anchorage as to serve the members of the 42 villages her work supported. The reason for Kathy's concern was that her always punctual and professional friend had not shown up to work on Monday morning, and given that she had appointments with patients, which she would never miss without, at the very least, a phone call, she knew something was wrong. A welfare request was made to police and actually followed through on. An officer swung by Mindy's house on the quiet cul-de-sac street of Cuddy Sark, but seeing as there was no sign of forced entry, the doors were locked, and there was no warrant, that was about as much as they could do. Which is why Kathy called again on Tuesday. By then, no one at work and none of Mindy's friends had heard from her for a couple of days. Kathy was worried, but tried to stay reasonable. Mindy has high blood pressure, she recalled, so as bad as the situation may seem, perhaps she's simply had an episode and lost consciousness and she just needs help, or that's what she desperately hoped. Mindy lived alone as she and her on-off partner, Robert, had separate homes in Anchorage. After the two met at a tavern in the Capitol Hill area of Seattle in the late 1970s, their sense of travel and adventure led them to Alaska. The freezing wilderness was a far cry from Mindy's roots in Brooklyn, New York. 
The couple didn't have a typical relationship, each buying a house of their own, Mindy leaving town bi-weekly for work. But they were happy with the arrangement, and Robert himself has said they had a great life. Mindy's childhood had actually prepared her for her career. Her father in the 1950s contracted tuberculosis, and due to the stigma surrounding the spread and social perceptions of tuberculosis, the family's orthodox community shunned them. This led to their moving to Syracuse and to Mindy's burgeoning interest in helping those cast aside. She knew to show great patience towards those with whom she worked, never judging, only doing her best to understand their needs. This came easily to Mindy as she was an open-minded spiritual person. Growing up with a mother who was into the wooji bougie, one might say, Mindy didn't shy away from the counterculture of tarot, crystals, feng shui, and other grounding practices. Nursing and helping those in her community were always a part of Mindy's work. Her air of casual and approachable professionalism was welcoming to those she served. Looking at her big smile and dark, untamed hair, you could easily picture her transitioning from working with and comforting her psychiatric patients to going out berry picking as part of jamming season, which was exactly what Kathy hoped Mindy had been doing. If she wasn't home, injured, or ill, then perhaps it was the unforgiving natural elements of Alaska that were keeping her from getting in contact. She simply must have gone berry picking and perhaps fallen or hurt herself, leaving her isolated and desperate. Convinced her friend was in need of help, Kathy left work, taking to the road, and making the six-hour drive in the opposite direction Mindy was supposed to have flown that previous Sunday. Just like she always had, splitting her time between the two major cities. That's why Kathy called the police again that Tuesday, this time making it very clear that the level of concern needed to be heightened. With the second report, Kathy was told to wait 48 hours before making an official report, which, remember, is no longer the case. You can call the police and file any time these days. But the officers promised they would do another welfare check to appease her. Hearing the desperation in Kathy's voice, a police sergeant went to the house. Accessing the garage, he found a door he could jimmy open with a credit card to check inside. Nothing really seemed amiss, but knowing a missing persons report was coming down the pipe, he went ahead and asked the homicide unit to join him. Speaking to a fellow nurse and close friend, Jerry Yett, police learned more about Mindy and the timeline surrounding her disappearance. Jerry had actually been inside the house on Monday as she was responsible for feeding Mindy's cat when she was in Fairbanks. Entering the home, she found a loose doorknob. Happy to do her friend a favor, she tightened it. The doorknob wasn't the only thing amiss. Apart from being a tidy person, keeping a clean house, Mindy always made sure things were a certain way before going back to Fairbanks. It wasn't like her to leave out papers, bills, and mail strewn all over the counter, or to leave an empty wine bottle out, all of which had been alarming for Jerry to find. If that wasn't concerning enough, there was a ritual of sorts Mindy would do before leaving town. She would leave a thank you note and a check and some chocolate for Jerry's daughter, who would clean the house for her when she was gone. Besides what wasn't there, what remained in the house was disturbing to police. As an avid traveler and someone who worked with some of the most remote tribes and villages, Mindy had been gifted and had purchased many expensive artifacts, yet there they remained on her mantle, untouched. Perhaps one could chalk that up to an ill-informed robber not knowing what was of value. Whoever did break in had either ulterior motives or was completely oblivious as they also missed the blank prescription pad on the table whose street value would be in the thousands. As the search continued, Jerry shared other concerns. Mindy's bed was made. 
Jerry had never seen her bed made like that. Knowing how much Mindy tossed and turned at night, it appeared someone besides Mindy had made the bed. Jerry could speak to Mindy's sleeping habits because they were best friends. They had spent years traveling deep into the rugged rural areas they loved so much, sometimes in tiny two-seater planes through hazardous weather. In a full-circle moment, it was tuberculosis patients that brought Jerry and Mindy to their remote Alaskan locations. The friends had shared tents, beds, and bathroomless homes. Just like Kathleen Henry from episode 19, these were some tough Alaskan chicks. They had been through so many amazing, life-changing, good and bad times, Jerry knew when something wasn't right. So when she saw the apron she had made for Mindy crumpled on the garage floor, she was certain something terrible had transpired. While in the garage, it was discovered Mindy's red Acura was missing. This wasn't the strangest thing, but it was a red flag as Mindy usually took a cab since she lived less than a mile from the airport and had no desire to pay their exorbitant parking fees. Something that was in the house was a man's wallet. Within the billfold, there was a small piece of paper which had a four-digit number written on it and a receipt for an ATM withdrawal. It was for $500 on August 5th at 5.01 a.m. Considering the receipt the first clue, police requested surveillance video from the ATM at that time. It showed a male taking the money using Mindy's card, but there wasn't enough on the video to be able to make out any other defining features. Following the money trail, detectives discovered the card, having reached its daily limit on the $500 from the first visit, was used the next day at a different ATM around 4 a.m. This time, detectives got two hits, a face and a witness. Assuming the sunglasses being used as a disguise had started to fog up because of the bandana over the lower half of their face, the person making the transaction pulled the bandana down which is kind of funny to think how two years ago that might have been harder for some of us to fully understand. But now, two years into masking, we're like, oh, yeah, you can't have a bandana. That's going to fog all over the place. Checking other users of the machine, officers found a man who claimed to struggle with sleeping, so he just wandered to the bank to take money out, which was quite handy as he spotted the masked man. Besides the early morning hour making his presence noticeable, the witness claimed the man had struggled with the ATM. After taking the second withdrawal of $500, the man walked away, forgetting the card in the machine. Oopsie doodle. Uh-huh. As a standard security method, the card was then sucked in. Desperate to retain access to the $20,000 he had seen in the balance, the man went back to the machine, hoping to be able to retrieve the card. But no matter how much he paced, tapped, and picked at it, there was no getting it back. And I kind of love picturing that moment. Yes. That this person has done something to get this card, and all they want is to take 500 bucks out, like, every day to get that 20 grand. Uh-huh. And I- they're so excited and distracted by the money that they forgot the card. And also, I can just picture him standing there kind of, like, open mouth staring at it, like, yeah. did I just do that? Yeah. Like, wait, what happened? <laughs> you know when you've done that, where you're uh-huh. like, I don't know how I'm going to fix this situation. Yes. And it's, I mean, granted, he can't tell anyone because it's probably from a bad thing, but... When you don't want to because it's so embarrassing. Like, <laughs> do I live without my money now? Maybe. So I don't have to talk to anybody. Oh, God. Yeah. That, he thought he had, like, what do you call it? A cash cow oh, for yeah. a while? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it gives you an idea of the intelligence level we're dealing with here. As the weekend turned into the next week, it was hard for friends to believe Mindy had been missing for five days. 
By then, friends arranged their own search parties, checking her usual berry hunting locations, hiking routes, and even spots like dumpsters and train tracks where bodies were sometimes disposed of. When thinking about who, if something malicious happened to Mindy, could or would have motive to do so, a list of persons of interest developed. Her boyfriend, Robert, was questioned. Not only did he have an alibi, as he had been in Nome on the Bering Sea coast of Alaska when she went missing, but they had a positive relationship. Not only that, but he had been the one to contact authorities to find out what was going on after leaving Mindy unanswered messages, calling again to find her voicemail was full, and hearing from a friend of hers that on Monday she hadn't shown up for work. Around the time she disappeared, Mindy was planning a remodel of her kitchen. This led to multiple contractors coming into the house, finding a woman who lived alone and clearly had a little bit of money. After speaking with friends, investigators learned one man in particular had left Mindy with a really bad feeling. Running the backgrounds of those she had met in person, there were some records, but nothing arose from questioning that led investigators to think any of them had been involved. There was no concern Mindy had left on her own accord. Besides never displaying behavior that would have anyone thinking she would harm herself or go off the grid, not to mention the upgrade to her kitchen, she was also starting a new chapter of her career. In the process of opening a private practice, Mindy was excited to have the space to provide services as a psychiatric nurse practitioner. When a week passed, her story started to garner more mainstream news coverage as it was obvious her disappearance was suspicious. Not knowing if Mindy had left in her car or if it had been taken by whomever was involved, besides Mindy herself, the vehicle was the only thing officials could ask people to keep an eye out for. An APB was put out for her red Acura. Gathering friends of Mindy's friends, searches continued, focusing on the more than 1,500-acre Kincaid Park just down the street from her home. That's when a man, who was friends with Mindy's friend Bob, went to the airport. Maybe she had taken her car and had gone on her flight. Could she be missing in Fairbanks and everyone had been looking in the wrong direction? But when he pulled into the parking lot at the Sky Chef building, an area adjacent to the airport, home of airport meal preparation, those concerns dissipated as concern for Mindy grew. There, in the lot, was her red Acura. Police quickly arrived and closed off the area to process it as a crime scene. Luckily, the Sky Chef parking lot had a security camera, and given the obscure location of the car, it was presumed that if it hadn't been Mindy driving, the person who dumped the car may have thought they would escape the range of any security systems. Viewing the low-quality video, they saw a man park the car at 12.45 p.m. on August 4th, wipe the driver's door, possibly to remove prints, and walk away. Unfortunately, that was about all they could garner from it. The car was searched. In the back seat, Mindy's purse, which still contained her keys and wallet, where the only thing missing was the ATM card that had been ingested by the machine a week prior. In the trunk was a suitcase with her clothes and laptop inside, ready for another work trip. Along with the suitcase, a shovel from her house. Other clues pointed to a frightful outcome for Mindy. There were cigarette butts in the ashtray. Not only were they, according to her friends, not her brand, but she had quit smoking five years prior. On the floor mat on the back passenger side, blood. Sideways on the armrest of the back door, a dusty shoe print. Everything was collected as evidence and the cigarettes were sent to be tested for a DNA match. As part of their investigation, detectives went door to door throughout the quiet neighborhood. There wasn't much to report. 
A couple of neighbors mentioned there had been complaints about a loud party at one of the houses the Friday night before Mindy disappeared, but then again, that house having an annoying party wasn't anything new. No one was home when officers went by to question the residents of the party house, but they kept the house on their radar after learning that during some of the parties the house was known to host, Mindy would be the one to tell them to be quiet, sometimes enduring bottles and cans being thrown into her yard as a consequence. Detectives learned a woman had owned the home but moved out, leaving her teenage son, his friend, and his girlfriend to rent it. Another neighbor stated that at 9.15 a.m. on the 4th, he saw the red Acura pull into the driveway, watched a slender arm reach up and hit the door control remote and go into the garage. This again gave police a bit of a vague timeline, but nothing solid enough to go off of. Another neighbor they wanted to speak to was Mindy's next-door neighbor, Kathy Sassley. This is a different Kathy than the friend that had filed the report. After being out of town with her family, Kathy returned home on the 14th of August, 10 days into Mindy's disappearance. Before the cops could get to her, there was a knock at her front door. Answering it in a hurry as she was running late for work, it was her neighbor Josh. He was just wondering if she had spoken to the police and if so, what she had told them. As a future foreman of a red flag factory, Josh demanded that she not tell the cops he lived next door as he had warrants out for his arrest. When Kathy inquired what they were for, he stumbled over a story of robbing a drug dealer's house. It made no sense, but she needed to get away from him and get to work, so she agreed and closed the door. Josh left. Kathy was only annoyed as she was now even more late for work after dealing with his buffoonery. Soon after, another knock. Answering it, she was surprised to find the police this time. As they began to talk about Mindy, her eyes peered over the officer's shoulder, and she could see Josh's house. As they stood on the porch talking, Josh stood at his kitchen window, watching her. More than just Mindy, the conversation shifted to the house Josh resided in. Kathy was friends with the owner, whose brother Jeremy was staying with her while he recovered from knee surgery. She knew the 18-year-old son, his 19-year-old friend, and his girlfriend lived there. After finishing the conversation, Kathy continued to try to get out the door for work. Before she could, Josh was back. Be it his own curiosity or to intimidate, he asked her what the police asked about and what she told them. She vaguely answered his question before finally leaving. The interaction disturbed her. When she got to work, she mentioned how strange and intense her neighbor had been and how uncomfortable the whole situation was. Horrified, her co-workers told her to call the police, and she listened, leaving a message for the detective specifically asking not to speak at her home. Laying in bed that night, Kathy heard the almost musical tones her house made when someone was home. The porch creak that was always followed by the click of an unlocking and whooshing of the front door. Except the door noises never came, and the floor didn't creak again, meaning whatever had stood at the door causing the sound was still there. Kathy turned off the lights and made her way to the front of the house to look outside. When she did, she saw Josh just standing in front of her door, staring at it. He was there long enough to smoke a cigarette. Walking away from the door, he peered around as if he was looking to see where doors and windows were before he rang the doorbell and left. For all she knew, he had rung the bell to lure her out of the house, scream style, so she stayed hidden, calling Jeremy, who was at a friend's house, and telling him to get back home. Officially scared, Kathy spoke with police, telling them everything about her neighbor Josh. Surveilling the house she said he lived in, the officers spotted a young man who not only matched the description Kathy gave them, but that of the man in the ATM video. 
After taking candid photos, they questioned him. Just like Kathy had said, his name was Josh, and he did have a warrant, but it was for underage drinking. This was 18-year-old Josh Green. Taking the photos of Josh Green to Kathy, detectives were shocked when she informed them that they had the wrong Josh. This was not the man who had come to her door thrice. This Josh, Josh Green, just happened to stop by the house to visit his friends. By now, the police were getting fed up with the shenanigans coming out of that house. Questioning the residents further, they finally admitted, yeah, there was another dude living in the house, and his name was Josh, and they had good reason not to tell the police sooner. They were scared for their lives. Not only was Josh's whole vibe just off, but there would be times the roommates would be hanging out, maybe just watching TV or reading, and they would notice a small red light on their chest. Looking up, they would find Josh just standing in the hallway, holding his laser-sided Glock on them. Asking the girlfriend about Josh, she was the only one to know his last name, Wade. When lead detective Pam Pernound heard that name, she was floored. This was not Joshua Wade's first run-in with police, and it was not the first time he was thought to be involved in the harming of a woman. On Saturday, September 2nd, 2000, a couple was walking their dog, Josie, to the liquor store. Lance and Mark had been hosting friends but ran out of spirits, leading to the 2.15 a.m. booze run. Walking past a shed, their pup, Josie, started acting strangely. The shed was well known in the Wasilla area. It used to belong to a local television station, but over the years, the lack of care and seclusion led to it becoming a den of drug use and sex work. Lance, struggling with drug use of his own, was familiar with the shed and had been there before to use. Walking over, he opened the door and used a flashlight to see what could have been drawing Josie's attention. Streaming the light inside, Lance turned, ran away, and vomited. Telling Mark what he had seen, he detailed a horrific sight. There was a body on the floor. It was a woman, nude from the waist down, her pants around her ankles, and her legs spread eagle. Only one shoe remained on her foot, the other was caught in her torn-off pants. The blue tank top and bra she wore beneath it had both been pushed up to her neck. Her head was a mangled mess. Lance had no doubt that the woman was dead based on how her head looked and the amount of blood on the shed floor. Desperate to forget what happened, the boys returned to their party and tried to erase it from their mind by using whippets. Starting to worry that they had misjudged the situation, Lance thought they should go back in case she wasn't dead and there was something they could do to help. So, returning with their friends, Steve and Casey, they looked again. The woman's head was partially crushed. They didn't need to look for a pulse to know she was not alive. Steve was no help to have brought along. He flipped out, running amok in shock and grief and what sounded like some real attention-seeking nonsense. Casey, however, was willing to call the police on everyone's behalf around 3 a.m., Instead of risking getting in trouble for having waited to call, Casey didn't tell the story of the boys and their dog. Instead, she insisted, quote, mystical forces had drawn her to the shed. That story didn't last long, and soon she spilled, telling of the boys' discovery and their fear, leading to a 30-minute delay in calling for help. The shed made for a nightmare of a crime scene. This wasn't just because of the state of the body that lay inside of it, 
but due to its frequent use by a variety of people, it was nearly impossible for investigators to determine what was evidence and what was simply remnants from previous occupants. After photos, the body was removed and taken for autopsy and identification. Upon examination, it was found the woman had a three-inch long laceration above her right eyebrow. On her neck, wounds that appeared to be older than the incident that caused her death. They had an odd redness to them, appearing as though there had been an attempt to cut her neck, but the blade was too dull to do any more than superficial damage. Her leg bore a similar marking. Her left eye was black, and the left side of her scalp was lacerated. The right side of her head had a wound from eyebrow to forehead. The petechia on her neck appeared to be the result of a strike with an object. On her face and in her hair were three burnt matches, taken as a sign of disrespect to the body. The injury to her head was not simply a laceration. When examining the body, the doctor noted the gash to her scalp was so deep he could see bone. As he shifted her head for the process, he said the pieces of skull falling out of the open wounds felt like emptying a bag oh, of ice. That's horrible. Yeah. The beating she had sustained to her head had led to hemorrhaging, causing her death. The blood settlement showed she not only died somewhere between 24 and 36 hours before police found her, but that she had been on her stomach before eventually being rolled onto her back by someone. Strangely, it seemed some of the wounds could have happened hours before her death, but the blunt force trauma to her head showed she would have died within an hour of that occurring. The autopsy was telling investigators she could have been suffering from injuries in the shed for about six hours before being bashed in the head with something heavy, oh. before dying alone on the shed floor an hour later. Do you think maybe they were keeping her there? In the book, it's kind of not really visited. That's kind of an issue I had with the book is things like this were just They're kind of on, mentioned. not elaborated. Yeah, and I... And, and, it, I, and it could be that he didn't have that answer from the police exactly, report. Exactly, exactly. And this is from, you know, 22 years ago yeah. that this happened. Um, but I think once you hear the full story, even okay. though we don't get all the information, that that will kind of be answered, I think. She had suffered a heinous and brutal death. Forensic scientists tried to locate possible fingerprints left on her body by the culprit, but the process returned no results. When it came to her fingerprints, they provided the police with her name, Della Brown. As toxicology reports came back, it was learned Della had a blood alcohol content of 0.248 and quite a bit of cocaine in her system at the time of her murder, which, for someone of her petite size, would explain the lack of defensive wounds. On the body, there was a pubic hair and semen in her vagina and anus. There was no sign of rape, but it was very likely she was not conscious at the time of the attack. Interesting. Yeah, point, that's, I don't know what lethal levels are, but if you can't drive at point zero eight, I'm going to have to go with there is a sign of rape. If someone has that high of an alcohol content in cocaine in their system. That's a very good point. So it should be um, passed out. No, no sign of, I guess, uh, an attack from that. Right, because she was unconscious. Thank you. That's a really good clarification that uh, it could have possibly been rape. Absolutely. Just the, the idea that she had wounds on her that would have been hours earlier makes mm -hmm. me think that, yes, she was raped. Right. As Della's body was processed, so was the crime scene. Detectives felt that, due to blood spatter found at the bottom of the shed door, her body had been moved to block the door from others coming in. It didn't really keep people out, but perhaps the door hit her head, transferring the blood. So was there another way in and out of the shed other than the door? 
I do not believe so. And I think it was a reasonably sized shed. So would the person have like dragged her body as they were leaving to put That's her in front of the door? That's what I inferred from that. That kind of I pulled her as close as I could yeah. to the door as Hoping I exited. that no one exited. would be able to open Exactly. It. This would be Della's last encounter with the police, but it wasn't her first. She had been arrested for domestic violence and had a recent DWI, which also involved a high blood alcohol content as well as cocaine. Della's drug and alcohol use came from a lifetime of trauma, abuse, and attempts to numb the pain she carried with her. Before she was even born, Della's life was shadowed in darkness. She was conceived by her 18-year-old mother, Daisy, as a victim of rape. Unable to bear the pain of her sexual assault and to care for the resulting child, Daisy left her baby Della and Alaska behind as she traveled to New Mexico to start a new life. Della was adopted, but life remained unrelenting. Her adopted stepfather began sexually abusing her when she was only seven years old. Mm. She tried to tell people, but no one would listen, so no charges ever came. When she was 15, she became pregnant and, just like her mother, put the baby, dubbed Nora, up for adoption. Eventually, Della and Daisy reconnected. Daisy had a family now, and Della was happy to step into the big sister role. Even though they were far apart, when around her extended family, she enjoyed doing things like taking drives, showing off all of Alaska's wilderness, going fishing, and watching scary movies. But not all interactions were positive. The last time Daisy and Della spoke, it was over the phone. Della was intoxicated, and her inhibitions were gone. Angrily, she told her biological mother that if she hadn't been left behind in Alaska, she wouldn't be dealing with all of the demons that were at her door. She would have been fine, just like her half-siblings were. From the moment Daisy left Della in Alaska to the moment she hung up from that conversation, Daisy had felt immense guilt about what her daughter had been through and had hoped she could find a way to mend their relationship. But that chance would never come. That's really sad. Yeah. Even just reading that, you know, not knowing them or even getting to it. You can feel that yeah. mother's guilt. You can feel the weight Because of... you think you're doing right by your child. Right. By, you know, you can't provide for them mm-hmm. in the way that you think they should get. And then you just realize their and, life is just as bad as you imagined. Yeah. And doing right by you to be like, mm-hmm. I can't, you know, I, I can't fathom bearing a child yeah. as a rape victim. And to never be able to resolve that conflict. Right. Yeah. It's very sad and sorry for her. At 1 a.m. on September 3rd, one of Della's half-brothers received a phone call from his Aunt Mary, sister to his mother, who still lived in Alaska. She had been called in to identify the body of her niece, Della. Devastated, James went to his mother's home, where at 2 a.m., he woke her to break the horrible news. Her daughter was dead. The house, full of Della's loved ones, burst into tears and howls of pain. Hoping to solve yet another murder of an indigenous woman, police looked into the background of their victim. Besides Nora, Della had an 18-year-old son who lived in the same Idle Wheels mobile court as she and her boyfriend, Rudy Diapice, of whom police were quite familiar. The couple had been together for about three years, but it was far from a loving relationship. Just 18 months prior, Rudy had been arrested for assault after an incident that should have, in my opinion, been classified as attempted murder. Uh During yet another one of their arguments that would escalate to physical violence, Rudy beat Della before holding his hands over her nose and mouth. (gasps) Taken to the hospital, Della told the investigating officer Rudy had threatened to kill her if she didn't shut up. The threats and attack earned him a whopping two months in jail. Yeah, that was attempted murder. Yeah. What in the world? When the neighbors weren't calling the police on the couple, there were scattered good times. 
like when they were able to support one another in maintaining their sobriety. Della was especially focused on getting clean, attending Alcoholics Anonymous, and working as a caller at a bingo hall. Living in the mobile home court that was described as dilapidated wasn't easy. Just a week before her murder, Della had attempted to take her own life. To ease her anxiety, she was prescribed medication during the resulting hospital stay. The medication helped with her emotions, but not her living situation. In the days before the murder, Della told a family member she was finally going to leave Rudy. She also told a friend in the neighborhood that if ever something bad was to happen to her, it would be at Rudy's hands. Oh, to specifically say if Mm -hmm. something happens to me, that goes to show that he was very serious about his threats. Yeah, and that she was genuinely scared of him. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is exactly why police wanted to question him. Arriving at the home, they were surprised to find garbage bags of clothing and prescription pill bottles on the porch. Inside, they found a drunken Rudy who was willing to talk. Yes, he had been violent with Della in the past, and yes, she left their home the night she was murdered after they had a fight about money, but he had nothing to do with her death. A death he was informed of by the officers. Without much of a reaction, he asked how she died. When the officers said blunt force trauma, he followed up with, where, the head? Officers took this as odd, but I kind of feel like, as strange as that may be to say, we don't know how people grieve, and it's also hard to imagine anywhere else on the body blunt force trauma would happen in a murder. What really raised a red flag for the officers was when Rudy expressed more emotion towards Della using his card to take out $100 than the fact that she was dead. Hmm. I don't know if I'd necessarily question somebody asking that. I wouldn't either. I would be concerned that they're like, my money. Yeah, if they're able to focus on that. But it's also like, you don't know what your response will be because your brain is going into shock. Also, you can get blunt force trauma all over your body. Right. But I would think if someone said to me someone died of blunt force trauma, yeah. my brain is like, it your head. head. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I just don't think that that's the biggest concerning question. Yeah. Where was she found in a shed or something? Like that would have been... But it way is, more alarming. It is odd that he had the fight about money, and uh-huh. then when they bring up the money again, he's more concerned about exactly. that. When the officers inquired about the things on the porch, Rudy seemed to be open and honest about his and Della's relationship. The night she left, they had argued about money. She wanted a few bucks, but Rudy knew it was to go buy booze. Seeing as the last time she drank, she had attempted to take her life, he was not going to support her. This led to an argument and another breakup, Della saying she was leaving him, Rudy assuming she went to another man. In his anger, he packed up all of her things into the garbage bags and threw them outside, including the meds necessary for her mental health. Exposing just how dramatic yet hollow their fights were, he claimed to have grown concerned when after the first day, none of the pills had been taken. So that sounds very normal if he weren't known to be violent with her. Right. So part of me is like, is he being truthful here right that sounds kind of like a dramatic reaction from a dramatic fight mm-hmm. and then he realized she did not come back to check out check out her stuff and get her meds mm-hmm. and he's concerned yeah and then it's like oh wait like that was like that was real that time or that was really bad besides their financial discussion rudy could offer one other bit of intel a man had crawled into the trailer della owned but her son lived in just a few lots down When police questioned 18-year-old Robert, he shared he wasn't close with his mother due to her drinking, but the home was always open to her when she and Rudy would have one of their breakups. There was no police report made regarding any strange man crawling through anyone's window in the area. Other than giving context to his mother's relationship, Robert didn't have much to offer the investigation. 
Another neighbor, Stephen, had seen Della the night she went missing. It was around 9.30 p.m. and she had asked for and he had given her $10. This interaction helped narrow down the timeline of events. With further questioning, Rudy recalled having seen Della one last time. He had been drinking and looked out the window, seeing her standing in the park looking gussied up. Rudy could only assume she was dolled up for a date with her known lover, Monty Dugan. Learning there was DNA at the scene, Rudy implied it could have come from Monty. When asked if he had anything to do with killing her, Rudy answered no. Okay, so let me get this straight. She has the on-again, off-again violent boyfriend, and then Monty is a lover? Yeah. Okay. And, and then... kind of, oh, they weren't in an, so much an open relationship, it sounded like, but just kind of was. Like, they were breaking up so often. Yeah. Yeah. And her boyfriend was the one that said he thought he saw a man climb through. No, that he had heard that someone had gone through oh. the other. So, But the son said no. Yeah. So Robert and Della had their own home in the lot. Right. And then she would just stay with Rudy. But then when they'd break up, she'd go there with Robert. But he's like, as far as anyone knew, no, nobody crawled through any window or did anything. So was the boyfriend implying that it was the lover that crawled through the window? I think he was just kind of saying the way I took it was like I'd been I had heard that that had happened kind of uh, through the rumor mill. Mm. And so, hey, if you're looking for oh, probably to like throw the attention off him. Yeah. So it's like, hey, if you're looking for somebody that could have done this, probably whoever was crawling through yeah. some window. OK, so we don't know if it's true or not. Exactly. Except that there was no report made or anything. Right. So it's just kind of uh, just gossip in the neighborhood. Putting the pieces they had together, detectives had Della at idle wheels, getting money from Stephen and leaving the area around 9.30 p.m. That happened after Rudy claimed to have fallen asleep, giving her a chance to take the card out of his wallet. Due to her recent DWI, she was heading into town on foot, trudging north on Arctic Boulevard. Something happened in the time she walked to the liquor store to make a purchase to her walk home, something that had led to her death. Back at the shed, detectives had one hell of a scene to dissect. The shed had been used by so many people for so many years, it was nearly impossible to decipher if a piece of paper from the 1950s was part of the crime, or if they should save all of the cigarette butts to be held as evidence, or just the most recent layer. That's rough. Yeah. I can't even imagine. It was clear from the paperwork, garbage, and drug paraphernalia that many people had been in and out of the shed, and they were going to need more than any evidence collected there to make any kind of case. Once informed the cause of death was blunt force trauma, officers began searching for potential weapons. Bringing in a team of searchers, they were unsuccessful in locating whatever large, heavy object had done such damage to Della. In all, 44 pieces of evidence were taken from the shed, there were papers imprinted with bloody shoe markings, a bloody red tank top, a plaid coat that was presumed to have been worn by Della prior to the attack, a piece of ripped fabric, and a clump of her hair. As officers maintained a barricade of do-not-cross tape, a young man and his girlfriend approached them. They were curious about the goings-on. Informing him there was a murder, they asked if he had been around the neighborhood that night or if he had seen anything suspicious. Romeo, the young man, had been in the neighborhood. Not that it was suspicious, but he did happen to see a petite indigenous woman walking with a large black man around 11 p.m. Oh. the night before. This piqued the officer's interest. As vague as that description was, it did fit Della. 
Officers took Romeo's information, and he was on his way. Police didn't know at the time that Romeo knew more about what had happened in the shed than he was letting on. He and his buddies were in a gang of sorts in the neighborhood, and the night of Della's murder, they were all hanging out at a friend's auto garage. Another man at the garage was Kevin Ayers. He wound up getting arrested for charges unrelated to Della, but he too knew things about that night he thought the cops might be interested in. Kevin's brother worked at the auto shop all of the guys hung out in, and he knew of some strange goings-on in the hours surrounding Della's death as well. Kevin claimed Romeo, who had been the young man who spoke with police at the scene, their friends Dwayne, Josh Wade, and a few others were hanging out that night. At one point, Josh had left and returned with his shirt covered in blood. Uh-oh. He then announced to his buddies that he had beaten a woman in a shed, hitting her with a shovel and rock. He claimed to have raped her and slit her throat. Well, isn't he a great friend to have around? Mm-hmm. So what does this guy look like? Josh Wade? Yeah. Um, He looks like a Dollar Tree Jesse from Breaking Bad. Okay, so he's not the black man that Romeo says he saw her with. He's not. Interesting. As interesting as this was, police were hoping the story could be corroborated by others present on that night. Luckily for them, Romeo called the Crime Stoppers hotline, and he not only told a nearly identical story, but he had more to add. Besides confirming that Josh had been at the garage and had been covered in blood, Romeo had seen Della before she ended up in the shed. Earlier in the evening, when the guys were driving to the shop, they spotted a body in the road. Josh, who was driving, joked about running it over before swerving as to not hit it. Josh sounds like a real gem. Doesn't he, though? Pulling over, Dwayne got out. It was clear this woman had overenjoyed the intoxicants she had purchased. Wanting to move her from harm's way, Dwayne grabbed the woman's foot, dragging her off the road and into a grassy area near the shed. No one thought much of it until later in the evening when they were at the garage and Josh declared that he would be back in a bit. He was just going to go check to make sure the lady from the street was okay. They should have known this guy. Yeah. After Della's murder, she, along with several other victims, were on the front page of the local paper. As has always been and continues to be the case, a killer or killers were targeting the vulnerable population of indigenous women in Alaska. As we've discussed before, indigenous women and children experience higher rates of sexual assault, physical assault, and murder. Data for indigenousjustice.com tells us in 2016, 5,712 cases of missing or murdered indigenous women were reported, but only 116 were logged into the Department of Justice database. Of all of the cities in the U.S., Anchorage ranks third for number of cases, Alaska being the fourth highest state behind New Mexico, Washington, and Arizona. Four out of five American Indian and Alaska Native women and girls will experience violence in some form. Half of Alaskan women will experience partner violence. And indigenous women and girls in Alaska are 10 times, 10 times more likely to be murdered than a non-indigenous woman. Alaska also has the highest homicide rate of female victims killed by males, 92% of which will know their offenders. From 1999 to 2000, six women in the Anchorage area were murdered, five indigenous, one black. 
With Della becoming one of the statistics, she was added alongside some recent unsolved murders, hoping the police could connect them to one assailant, or if someone reading knew something, they would reach out. Those same hopes remain today. These murders are over 20 years old, yet they remain unsolved. Michelle Foster Butler was just shy of her 40th birthday on September 24, 1999. Her husband, Claude, a former basketball player, was arrested for selling cocaine and was sent to jail for four years, leaving her suddenly a single mother of three. Moving to Alaska when she was 10, Michelle graduated from East High School in 1979 before enrolling in cosmetology school. She loved being a mom and working to give her family the best. She was a dedicated homemaker who enjoyed keeping the smell of cookies lingering in the air, reading spiritual literature, cooking meals for her loved ones, and going for walks. As happy as the home was, it wasn't without its issues. Not only did the kids have to manage a new life without their father, but Michelle had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. The biggest side effect this brought on was that at times, Michelle would wander away from home. That's why when she left for a grocery store on foot the evening of the 24th, no one panicked when she didn't return that night or the next day. It wasn't until midnight on the 26th, her body was found laying at the intersection of 10th Avenue and Juno Street. Unlike some of the other victims that may have been targeted because of perceived vulnerabilities, Michelle did not have alcohol in her system. This also led to the autopsy showing defensive wounds on her hands and arms. It also showed she had died from being stabbed 10 times. Without her purse or wallet at the scene, her body continued to go unidentified. Since she and her children were living with her mother while her husband was away, it took time to learn her name, but they eventually did. Her husband, devastated, not only by the loss, but by the guilt he felt, thinking that if he hadn't been locked up, maybe he could have protected her. One of her sons, Jalil Abdul Bassett, was only six years old when he lost his mother. Like his father, who was one of the first Division I basketball players to come out of Alaska, he went on to become a Division I player representing the Oregon Ducks, graduating in 2019. Police still have no answers as to who may have committed this senseless murder. If you were in the Fairview area of Alaska on the evening of September 24, 1999 and saw anything, you are asked to contact Crime Stoppers by visiting AnchorageCrimestoppers.com or calling 907-561-STOP. A month before Michelle was found stabbed to death, 45-year-old Annie Mann was found murdered. On August 8, 1999, Annie's body was found behind a building at 1924 Post Road. Sperm was recovered at the scene, and her death has been ruled a homicide, but that's about it as far as information with her case goes. I don't even have her height or birth date. But in her photo, which we'll post on the website blog, you'll see she was Native American, had thick, dark, shoulder-length hair with bangs, and wore glasses, perhaps for fashion or comfort, as the frames are of a reddish hue. If you know anything about Annie Mann, killed August 8, 1999, please contact Crime Stoppers. Two months before Annie's death, Vera Hapoff's body was found. Unlike the other women, she wasn't discovered discarded in the street. Before friends could even report her missing, her body was found lodged in the Fish Ladder Dam at the Overlook Bridge at Ship Creek. Oh my. Officials couldn't tell exactly, but it was clear her body had been jammed in that space for hours. It was a Sunday afternoon when she was taken from the river, and it wasn't until Tuesday that 25-year-old was identified. Known as a volunteer for a local soup kitchen, Vera was friendly and happy to help. 
even though she herself was struggling to maintain housing. Her friends and family were surprised by the circumstances of her death, which was first ruled an accidental drowning. Not only was she loved in the community, leaving everyone at a loss as to who would want to harm her, but as far as they knew, she was a good swimmer. Even if she had stumbled into the water, she should have been able to swim to safety, giving us the real talk we all hope as opposed to the her smile lit up a room. A friend of Vera said, she wasn't necessarily a perfect person, but she was another human being and she didn't hurt anybody. What was the explanation for them originally saying it was an accidental drowning? Like she got sucked into that? I think they just kind of assumed that right away. Like... Like her body was in the water and just made its way to that. Yeah, I th- yeah, I don't think they think she was placed there. They again, there's just there's just such little information. We're talking, you know, twenty three years ago, a houseless indigenous woman. Yeah, not a lot of info, but hopefully somebody knows something. That would be great. That friend captured the sentiment all murder victims we discuss should come with. This was a person. Maybe they were houseless, maybe they used drugs or were a sex worker or had been arrested or didn't have custody of their kids or had been kicked out of their school or their home. None of that matters. What matters is that this was a human being who didn't hurt anyone and didn't deserve the hurt that was brought on to her. Once Vera was examined more closely, injuries to her body, which haven't been reported, caused the medical examiner to change her cause of death from drowning to homicide. Again, her case remains unsolved, and you are asked to call Crime Stoppers with any information. Other women murdered around the same time were Mary Petrosky, whose body was discovered alongside an Anchorage road, Louise Jacobs, who I can find no information on. Another victim, Helen Kingak, was found outside 341 North Lane in Anchorage on January 11, 2000. Her death was ruled a homicide after the cause was found to be massive internal injuries. Again, you can submit tips to Crime Stoppers. As for the other victims in the same time period, Genevieve Tempton, Cynthia Henry, Louise Jacobs, Tina Shangan, and Tawny Williams, their cases actually have a significant amount of information, so those will be saved for upcoming regular and mini-episodes. As much as some of these cases seem like long shots to solve, especially after over 20 years has passed, it's not impossible, and the Crime Stopper line does work, like in this case, where Romeo used it to report what he knew about the night in question, as did another mutual friend, Danny Trexel, who claimed to have known who was, quote, killing all the women. After it was revealed that Josh Wade had been at the garage and bloody, officers wanted to speak with him to find out more about his encounter with Della. Running his info, they found he had unrelated warrants out, making them even more eager to speak to him. But Josh wasn't going to make that easy. Hearing through the grapevine that the police were looking to speak with him, Josh left his house. He had good reason to be paranoid, and it wasn't just because he appeared to be a suspect in a murder. The drugs he was using were causing him to question everyone, bouncing around town. Drugs weren't a new part of Josh's life. His father, Bubba, had been a bouncer in Seattle and struggled with his own drug use and numerous affairs. In fact, when he learned his wife was pregnant, but from another man, he kicked her in the stomach, put her and his children in their car, held a gun in her mouth, and forced her to drive to her lover's home. Oh, wow. Once there, he nearly beat the man to death. Josh was a witness to this at only seven years old. Did the baby survive? Oh, we'll get to that. Leaving the family behind, Bubba settled in Alaska, where he continued to work as a bouncer. 
Before the family had settled in Washington, they started out as Mormons in San Diego. Then, then they moved to Montana, back to San Diego, and finally Seattle. Josh, his sister, and pregnant mother moved back to San Diego. While it was unexpected and chaotic, the two children were excited to gain another sister. When their mother left for the hospital, but returned home without a baby, Aww. they were devastated to learn she had put it up for adoption. Having never told them of her decision, they were blindsided by the loss. Their mother, recovering from her abusive marriage and the loss of her child, fell into alcohol to numb the pain. At 10, Josh attempted to drown himself. In response, he was placed in a Washington psychiatric hospital for three months. By the time Josh was 12, he had started smoking pot and his behaviors were getting to be so unsafe and out of control, his mother, who could no longer manage the unruly teen, sent Josh to live with his father in Alaska. As a teenager, Josh and his father stayed at a hotel. Surprised to hear a knock at the door, they answered it and found the hotel management and a guest, a guest who was staying in the room below them. She had noticed a camera in the corner of her window hanging from their balcony above. Oh, what? Josh denied any wrongdoing, claiming it was only a thermometer. Bubba and Josh were able to talk their way out of the situation, avoiding any ramifications. Now, was that a video camera or like... I Yeah, I, they, there wasn't a lot of detail, but I imagine just like a little... Wow, that's... Or maybe, like, you know how old digital cameras, some of them had recording options? Yeah. So it's probably something small like that since we didn't have, like, GoPro or whatever. With nothing coming of the hotel incident, Josh's questionable behaviors continued. Wanting to earn money, he babysat for a neighbor who worked swing shift. When the mother came home, Josh strangely asked if the little girl ever suffered from nightmares. Confused, the mother replied that it wasn't that common. Josh explained he was asking because the little girl had yelled out his name after she had fallen asleep. The mother found that odd, but didn't push the matter. After being watched a second time, the little girl asked her mother if she'd have to see Josh again. She said she didn't have to, and asked if there was anything wrong. There was. In a graphic retelling, the brave little girl shared with her mother what had happened once she had gone to bed. Josh came into her room. Pretending to be asleep, she didn't respond to him, probably out of hopes he would just go away. Instead, he got into her bed. And a warning to listeners that this is a graphic description of child abuse from the child involved. Once Josh was lying next to her, he pushed his tongue onto hers before removing the blankets that covered her and pulling her nightgown up past her nipples. Placing a hand on her hip, he put fingers on the outside of her vagina. Luckily, be it from her mother arriving home or a neighbor closing a door, he heard a noise and got scared, running out to the living room. This answered the questions her mother had as to why, after Josh, an avid cartoonist, left behind a drawing of a young man holding a mallet and a gun, the little girl found it and scribbled it out, covering it with nose. Not wanting his son in any more trouble, Bubba pressured the mother into not reporting the incident. And she didn't. No! How old was Josh at this point? Probably, I would guess between like 14 and 16. Like everybody listening, if your child shows signs like this, get them help because yes. it can be controlled. Yes. <sighs> and report it just so there's documentation, even if it's, uh, you know, you're feeling torn and mm -hmm. I don't want to. Think about the next kid. It's a family friend or something. Exactly. Think of who you're protecting, which is your own child and potentially other children. And you're helping this kid. If he's at that age and he's put into something that can get him help, then you're saving that child too. 
but that didn't happen. Around the same time, Josh was caught with a stolen car while in possession of cocaine. All of this had him in and out of jail and rehab throughout his later teenage years. Now 20, Josh had some good things going on. He was the co-owner of a tow truck company, and he had a group of friends. Granted, they were all supposed members of a gang that came with their own drug, alcohol, and legal issues. And that's not to say they were bad friends, just maybe not the best influences. One of those friends, Romeo, decided to play dumb when first speaking with detectives. He repeated what he told them at the scene about the large black man with the small indigenous woman. The next day, however, Romeo was suddenly willing to work with the police. He told detectives that on Wednesday following Della's murder, he and Josh drove by the shed. Stopping in front of it, Josh got out of the car and grabbed a shovel that was in the area and threw it in the car, one of those wooden ones with the red handle and scoop. It landed on Romeo's lap, and it gave him an uneasy feeling. Besides the shovel, he told them he and Danny had been at the garage that night. They had both seen Josh covered in blood. This wasn't new information, though. But now Romeo was claiming Josh asked, Want to see something? Oh, God. And took him to the shed. Opening the door, there was barely enough light to make out what Romeo would eventually tell was a dead body. Needing help covering up the deed, Josh asked Romeo to help him move the body and get rid of a large rock he had used to kill her, saying, quote, My dad says I need to move this rock. Cops didn't know that at the time when Josh went home that night and his dad saw the blood, Bubba told him to hide any evidence connecting him to whatever it was he had done. Oh, Bubba's just such a great guy, too. Yeah, he's doing, he's doing great. God's work. When police asked Romeo why he had gone out of his way to approach police about the black man, he claimed it had been to protect not only himself, but his girlfriend, as they had both been threatened by Josh. Oh, that makes more sense. And you could also go a little bit the other way to say, maybe protect himself, you know, if he had gone to the shed. Oh, yeah. And he doesn't want his stuff there. Or maybe he is closer friends to Josh than he's alluding to, and he's trying to protect him. He could be protecting all of his friends. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. The police had listened to his tip, though, and had been looking into Gregory Poindexter as a potential suspect. Gregory Poindexter, a six-foot-tall, 300-pound black man, was well-known in the neighborhood. There had been rumors he was assaulting women in the area, waiting outside bars for intoxicated indigenous women before attacking them. As much as investigators looked into Gregory, there just wasn't any evidence and certainly not any friends who were telling suspicious stories like Josh had. Confiding in his friend, Josh told Romeo that after seeing Della on the side of the road, he had gone back to where Dwayne had moved her. Finding her by the shed, he checked her pockets for money, drugs, or jewelry. While doing so, she urinated on his hand. Pissed off after getting pissed on, Josh went into a rampage beating Della and smashing her head with a rock. Questioning Danny again, he claimed that back at the garage, he stepped away from the noise of the booze-filled conversations inside to go make a phone call. When Josh ran into Danny outside, he told him to come with him and to bring a lighter. Looking into the shed, Danny saw a body. After asking his friend for help moving the body to be able to close the door better, Josh threatened Danny to not tell anyone. He reminded a shocked Danny that he knew where his mother lived, saying, I'll kill her if you say anything. Oh my God, this guy. Yeah. They both went back to the garage. In a daze, Danny sat down, pretending to act like everything was fine, but the shock his body was going through had him shaking, literally. Wanting to play it off like he was just cold, Josh put his sweatshirt on his friend's shoulders. 
prompting another friend to point at the spot in the middle going, what's that red stain? Now that they had both rolled on Josh, they agreed to go even further, wearing a wire. After being given a cruddy, run-down police car that had its own wiring set up, the guys were each fitted with a listening device. The plan was to pick Josh up and get him to talk about that night and what he had done. You know, props to anybody who's ever worn a wire. That has got to be one the of the scariest. scariest situations you're ever in. I'd be like, can you guys hear him over my heart? <laughs> Especially when you know they did it. Yes. You know, it's it'd be different if you're tr- you know trying to help the cops get info mm-hmm. on someone and you're not sure. But you know he's a scary guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've seen what he's capable of. I'm sure on many different occasions, these guys. Not just murder, but just, oh, when he drinks, he does this. Or yeah. when he gets upset, he does this. So good for them. Like, yeah. make, making up for their lack of talking about it earlier. Exactly. Pulling up, Josh was nearly immediately leery of the vehicle. But being that the guys had connections to the garage, shuffling cars around wasn't that uncommon and was easily dismissed. As a prompt, the guys had a newspaper on the dashboard, the cover showing the faces of the six recent murders, including Della. When Josh got a hold of the newspaper, he sounded excited. He soon started bragging that he was responsible for three of the murders listed. Oh, my God. Talking about Della, he claimed to have raped her after she had died and had thrown up (gasps) out of disgust. Oh, that's so gross. You know, and thinking about what he did, I will say, thank God she was intoxicated. Mm -hmm. She probably wasn't awake for any of that. Yeah. That she had her attempted suicide the week prior. Mm Mm-hmm. And then maybe through the hospitalization for a couple days and all of that, getting back home and settled that she was attempting sobriety again. And then, yeah, something triggered that. And just I'm glad she was unconscious. To be exactly. Truthful. That's a horrible way to go. Yeah. I mean, you want someone to be able to fight to defend themselves if they can. But it's like this sounds so intense and extreme and brutal yeah. well, and her that size, I don't know that she would have been able her to. Her small size, if mm-hmm. any alcohol, there's no way she could have fought him. Off. Exactly. So it's like. Yeah, at least you weren't, you didn't have to see it or feel it, hopefully. Attempting to get more details out of him, Romeo asked about the circumstances that led to her death, saying he had heard the beating was a result of Della urinating on him. Josh heatedly disagreed, but didn't give a different reason. Going back to talking about the rape, Josh claimed the adrenaline of the beating gave him an erection. He was overtaken by the moment, assuring his friends it had nothing to do with her looks or his being attracted to her. Just this guy. Imagine she urinates on you, so you beat her up, but then it's okay to rape her after she's dead. Yeah, and don't worry, guys. I know that she was, like, uh, an indigenous woman and was older or whatever. Like, don't worry. I didn't think she was hot. Like, that that's what he's worried about. He's trash. Yeah. That's an understatement. Girl, it's a two-parter. Wait till the end to see how you feel about this guy. Oh, boy. These are those cases where you're like, well, yeah, the death penalty. (laughs) Right? God. After nervously giving their self-confessed murderous friend a ride, the two guys went back to the police, riding high from the terror and adrenaline they had felt, worried they would do something to tip their friend off that could get them or their loved ones killed. Willing to provide detectives with even more information, another friend from the garage, Jesse, came forward. He had even more to gain from wearing the wire. He had recently been charged with assaulting a police officer. Oh, he wanted to get out of that. Exactly. Another janky car, another wired setup, another day hunting down Josh. When Jesse arrived to pick him up, it was clear the rumors, pressure, and drug use was getting to him. His paranoia had him nearly refusing to get into the car he didn't recognize. As the two spoke, Josh grew more and more anxious. 
Jesse played it cool, making an excuse for the car, offering him a ride. But the two weird cars and unexpected conversations with friends he hadn't really heard from since the night in question had him going over the edge. Eventually, he demanded Jesse lift his shirt to prove he wasn't working with the cops. Oh, shit. So scary. Josh's erratic behavior had Jesse worried, and he, too, didn't want to botch the case, blow his chance at a lesser sentence, or antagonize someone that could very well hurt him. Using reverse psychology, saying he was offended his friend would ask such a thing, Jesse refused. The two volleyed back and forth, with Josh saying, if you were my friend and had nothing to hide, you'd lift up your shirt. Jesse countering with, if you were my friend, you wouldn't think I would do that to you. After a few intensifying back and forths, Jesse dismissed Josh's behavior, acting annoyed at his paranoia so he could excuse himself from the dangerous situation. Holy shit. Also, guys, guys, you're not friends. <laughs> yeah. Just get that clear. Yeah. Um, that is nerve wracking. Uh-huh. And to just have to play it cool like, oh, okay, dude, you're just like a paranoid wackadoodle. I'm out of here. I'm not even going to engage in that. Like trying to play it cool. That would be. But at the same time, come on, police. Yeah, you're going to get suspicious of your friends having weirdo cars. And that's the part. I mean, again, the book has so much more detail. And there is a whole thing where they're like, uh-uh. No, he'll like he'll freak out. Yeah, this like isn't... let these guys help you dictate it because they know the guy. He does. He's not an idiot. Right. And they're like, no, no, no. Ours are all set up for all the wiring. And he, mm. they're like, OK, I cool. mean, thank God technology's come along. Right. <laughs> there was nothing to be learned from the wire with Jesse, but the wire with Danny and Romeo had provided police with enough information to get an arrest and search warrant. Finally able to move in, they just needed their suspect. But by the time they hit the streets, Josh had learned he would be arrested and he had fled. What would come next would be the first of two manhunts Alaska would end up conducting for Josh Wade. So join us next week as I tell the continuing story of Josh, what happened during his trial for the murder of Della Brown that led to him being a free man. A free man that would soon be wanted for another murder, that of Mindy Schloss. A free man? Excuse me. Well, how else was he Mindy's neighbor oh, seven years oh, I later? Know. I got very confused. I thought there were two Joshes. Then I figured it out and I forgot that part. So that's why the detective. So to to surmise. I get it now. Yeah. So in 2007, Mindy is missing. The nurse is missing. And everyone's this like, is what's why going on? He didn't want her to tell police uh-huh. that he was her neighbor. It all makes sense. And then the detective heard Josh Wade and went, I know oh, that no. guy. Uh-huh. Because Oof. in 2000, something happens that makes him fairly well known to all of Alaska's oh, boy. So police force. Did they locate that shovel by chance? Uh, they do eventually. Oh, okay, okay. I, I get know hung it's up hard on these little details. It's hard. It's like there's there's so much coming up to kind yeah, of don't tie all those spoiler. loose ends. So it's kind of like if you want to talk about stuff, we can, but there is going to be a lot of stuff and just in. like our listeners i have to wait till next week to that's hear the right rest of the story <laughs> you think i can read 45 pages in one day you crazy <laughs> let me get my fidget nail out of my mouth schloss schloss versus schloss 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 Hmm, schloss. You're saying schlosh, like sh- like slosh, but you're saying schlosh.
You're adding another sh to it. <clears throat> and schloss versus schlosh. Mindy schlosh. Mindy schloss. Schloss. An officer swung by Mindy's house on the quiet cul de stack. Stack. Her father in the 19. <laughs> good old nitrous. <laughs> My favorite year. The good old days. The level of concerned needed to be heightened. Concern. Oh, what did I say? Concerned. Oh, well, that's your problem. No. Oh, that's none of my concerned. <laughs> you know I can't do big words. I can write them. I can't read them. And Some you can't do them either. Oh. Just kidding. I, I can. I don't know <laughs> Get over here, disassociative. <laughs> <laughs> this times, times, and pulled the bandana down. Um, sorry. I think you said disguised. Oh, probably. I like putting D's at the end of I everything. I know you God. like your D's. I'm uh, sorry. It's my favorite hobby. In the back seat, Mindy's purse. Purse. Pursed. <laughs> yes. That's how I would say it, but <laughs> I like Ryan to add a big me. old D on the end. <laughs> we're the only. Oh, no. Not were. Where? GD it. There wasn't much to report. A couple of neighbors. Neighbors? A couple of neighbors. Oh my God. <laughs> Do I know this word? This is who you are now. Neighbors. A couple of neighbors. Ba ba ba. Neighbors. Okay. No one was home when officers went by to question that how. That how. how. No one was home when officers went by to question any. Oh my God. No one was. <laughs> watched a slender arm reach up and hit the door. Door. Watched a slender arm reach up and hit the door control remote. The shed was well known in the Wasilla era. Era? It's <laughs> <laughs> just my era. Get out of my era. In my private era. Hey, now. Was shadowed in dark. What? <laughs> what was it? <laughs> you guys know by now what I'm saying. I don't have to say words. <laughs> They'll figure it out. We're on shorthand terms now. It's been three years. But it was from. Frar, frar, frar. Frar talk. <laughs> that is what I was going to say. Oh my I God. thought so. Just made sense. <laughs> we should go on a game show together. <laughs> frar talk. What is frar talk? <laughs> like when they were able to support one each other. One each other. I love it when we support one each other. <laughs> <laughs> I have read this no less than four times. I'm sure. It just works out like oh that sometimes. Oh my God. My it's brain. Like, no matter how prepared you are, warmed up you are, you just don't know what's well, going to come like out. My, I think my brain knows and it's like, just put, send it all out. And it's, it's finally, like, we're finally getting it out of here. And you're over halfway done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just make all the words one word. <laughs> Friar. <laughs> she also total fr she also. <laughs> How dare you? Sorry. <laughs> I don't. Don't laugh, Emily. Don't laugh. I'm still a laugh at you. Emily, don't laugh. Don't, don't laugh at her. I'm trying to tell don't the story do of it. Gucci. Keep your lips together. <laughs> Poor Josh. It's like my new favorite noise to make. So I'm always just like, oh, Josh, you know. Don't you know I'm a Gucci baby? Come on now. Let me make it the clothes. Be the Batman, please. Oh, God. My new show, Amorpheus. Oh, my God. <laughs> It, I don't know what happened, but I suddenly don't like him anymore. It's the whole um, 
method actor thing that I can't get behind. Well, and he thinks he's so great. Like all the stories I read about him are like how he thinks yes. he's better than everyone. Yes. Oh, that's his vibe. Totally. And now he's coming out as with like a major Marvel character. I that's know. really irritating. It's super annoying. I agree. He's pretty though. He's so good looking. There's even a point in Gucci where they're all standing around talking, and then he goes, "Oh, what are you talking about? Uh, how you say da 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 da?" No. How is it how you say? Are they all speaking Italian and we're pretending it's Italian, but it's just accents, or they're all speaking English with their English Italian with their accent Italian and they accent. can't remember what they're saying yeah, in Italian? Yeah, wouldn't you think they'd speak Italian if it's a bunch of Italians? Or just let them all be English, like flat what American nothing. <laughs> it was nonsense. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. Don't watch Oh, my Gucci. God. Don't, don't, don't watch, watch the Gucci. Don't play, beg of you, please, God. Don't watch the Gucci. Just we'll play Super Nintendo instead. <laughs> Order me a spaghetti meatballs, please. <laughs> don't watch the Gucci. <laughs> the Benic... Oh, boy. Here we go. <laughs> One more time. Which is exactly why people wanted to question people. Who Which the fuck <laughs> are these people? More specifically... Police people. <laughs> the people in the roles of police I'm so officers. proud. It's like my most serious writing. I'm like, man, I'm like in the zone. I'm just I'm practicing. Sorry, and I'm warmed not up. helping. No, and then I'm going, it's the police people <laughs> that wanted to talk. Read the words you wrote. Nope. It's uh, not allowed in this room. Oh, that's right. The curse has been upon us. <laughs> I blame your Dungeons and Dragons. I do. I do. I'm a warlock now. I need a... <laughs> The fiend gave me powers. I made a deal with him. Oh, boy. It was nearly impossible to... So, so. The Shammy Sosa. Sh- Shammy Shosha. A young man... D- <clears throat> there you go with those Ds. Mm-hmm, I was going to call you out. Got it, got it yourself. <laughs> a young man... D- Am I okay? Why do I do that? <laughs> you just want to finish the word. The big old D. <laughs> That's right. Just like I like to finish my night. Hey, yo. Just kidding. We know that's not true. That's right. I listen to Harry Potter when I go to bed. (laughs) A big D calf coffee. (laughs) Snuggle up warm. Thank you. Little Henry. (laughs) He and his buddies were in a gang of shorts. Shorts? Shorts. A gang wearing shorts? We're the shorts gang. We like to show our legs. (laughs) They're pasty. They're hairy. When you're a jet, you're a jet all the way. <laughs> Gang of shorts. And they zip off the pants to make the shorts. <laughs> yeah, somebody shows up in pants. They're like, oh, we were worried you were one of those dangerous gang members. And he's like, ah, I am. Gang zip. of shorts. <laughs> Zweep. <laughs> oh, my God. We're so stupid. <laughs> you know, they're dangerous when they got cargo pockets. Oh, that's right. Or when those, like, the carpenters with the hangy things, you know. Go for their mm-hmm. hammer. That's right. Where my shorts at? Here we go. Besides, oh, I said quab waiting. Just call me thesaurus <laughs> dinosaurus. <laughs> the thesaurus dinosaur sound, obviously. <laughs> Just a full-on bleat. <laughs> that friend captured the sentiment. 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 Oof. Did he admit to lying about who he saw her with earlier in the day, or did he actually see her with someone else? He does, he does a touch on that. Okay, good. Yeah, we do, we do clear that up. Oh, it's literally the next paragraph. There we go. (laughs) Look at that. Just hold your damn horses, Emily. (laughs) Let me finish. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. 
You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls.